still at large. Unsolved British Murders Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 6 Lucy McHugh 26th of July, 2018 This week's show deals with violence against children and is significantly different from most of the cases as this is still an active investigation and someone has been detained. But the police, Hampshire Constabulary, are still appealing for information about the movements of the victim on the day she died and need to speak with any potential witnesses. This is the tragic and active investigation into the murder of 13-year-old Lucy McHugh in Southampton on the 25th or 26th of July. Southampton is a world-renowned port on the south coast of England. It has large docks that deal with dry goods in the form of aggregate, oil and gas docks, container and passenger terminals. The stretch of water that runs up to Southampton is called Southampton Water, which is the confluence of three major rivers, the Itchin, the Test and the Humble. Southampton Water joins the Solent and that features in the names of many small businesses that operate within the area. It's home to one quarter of a million people, making it the largest city in Hampshire. It's a diverse city that has, like every other major metropolitan environment, some problems and is carefully delineated into the various demographic class strata of housing and entertainments. Much of the housing is post-Second World War, social housing that went up following the cessation of the Luftwaffe's nightly bombing raids. That isn't to say that the place is homogeneous, as the sale of the social housing stock in the late 1980s and 1990s allowed for the homeowners to take control of their homes by modifying them and maintaining them themselves. This has produced a wide array of housing styles based around similar designs with individual touches. A fine example of this is the area around Mansell Road East. It's located just to the east of Western Docks, a large industrial dock area which is surrounded by the subdivisions of Millbrook, Shirley Warren, Lords Hill, Nursling and Redbridge. It's the shorter one of the two long crescents that connect Windermere Avenue with Wimpson Lane. They hug an area of land split into two, with Mansell Road East marking the split between the land that opens out onto Mansell Park on the west and the area that contains a fair-sized allotment area and Newlands Primary School. One of these houses was home to Lucy McHugh. Lucy was a smart, funny, friendly girl with a lot of friends. Her family loved her with all their hearts. It was the start of the summer holiday season, with Lucy's school having broken up for the summer on Friday the 20th of July. Who can forget the delight at the start of the summer holidays, and the summer of 2018 was a long and hot one. The promise of the summer, with the cooling effect of the River Test and Southampton Water, would have made the prospects of the next six weeks of freedom 
seem especially exciting. On Wednesday 25th, at some time around or shortly before 9am, Lucy left her home. That morning, Lucy had dressed in a white vest top, camouflage or DPM leggings, Jordan 23 basketball boots and a varsity jacket in black and white with the logo of the band falling in reverse on the front and Radke, R-A-D-K-E, 01 on the back. A varsity jacket, for those who aren't familiar with the term, are those seen in the various high school dramas that endlessly pour forth from the USA. They are the white armed jackets seen adorning team jocks. The name on the back, Radke, refers to the lead singer Ronnie Radke. Falling in Reverse are generally accepted to be a post-hardcore rap rock band that is a fusion of straight-up heavy metal in the style of Creator and quite aggressive and nihilistic rap-style lyrics and the rather stilted bouncy arm and hand-waving performance of rappers. It's no more than interesting and helps to understand who Lucy was. A normal, healthy and slightly rebellious teen with the usual interests of teenagers caught in the hinterland between childhood and adulthood. We have a fair idea of the route Lucy probably took from the CCTV that has since been gathered and analysed by Hampshire Police. The information relating to her movement from CCTV was released in order of discovery, so to keep it the story as factual as possible and present the gaps in the known movements, I'm going to tell it as it happened, not as it was discovered. At six minutes past nine, Lucy can be seen walking past the convenience store on Wimson Lane. She is heading up the hill towards Coxford Road. By this time, she rolled up the sleeves of her jacket. Given the weather, it's quite understandable. Her stride is quite long and Hampshire police describe her walk as quote-unquote purposeful. The shop is between the turning for Wimson Gardens and Crabwood Road. One reason for the stride Lucy has could be due to the road she was walking along, as it has an incline, and is quite a long incline too. Were you passing the double mini roundabout at the staggered junction of Windermere Avenue with Wimpson Lane and Redbridge Hill on that morning? You might have been driving past and saw something that could be irrelevant to you, but it might contain vital information. If you were driving in that area that morning, Please think back to then. At the top of Winston Lane is another complicated road junction. It's the intersection of Wimpson Lane, Romsey Road, which is the A3057, and Rownham Road. There are four pedestrian crossings, three of which are staggered pelican crossings and one pelican. A pelican crossing lacks the black and white banding of a zebra crossing and is controlled by a push button. Standard traffic lights are initiated by the button and there is usually an auditory alarm for the blind or those with sight impairments. Staggered crossings have each carriageway separated by a small traffic island, which pedestrians can pause on should they need to. On the 25th of July, were you at this crossing? The A3057 is a busy road with a bus stop on the Romsey Road. This is serviced by the Blue Star Bus Company and is Route 4. The official name for the stop is Maybush Corner. 
there are three Blue Star buses that would have been in the area around the time in question, and it's vital that all of the passengers and drivers on them try to remember who and what was around that junction at the time in question. Lucy is seen on the CCTV from the shop at 9.06, and it's no more than a minute or two from the junction. Traffic in the area would have meant that to cross the junction, Lucy would have had to have wait either opposite the Maybush Corner bus stop towards the centre of Southampton, or at the staggered Pelican Crossing opposite the Nyssa local shop and the co-op supermarket on the A3057 towards Lords Hill and Nursling. Do you recall seeing a girl in camo leggings and a varsity jacket in that area? From the CCTV image, we can be certain that Lucy was walking on the side of the road next to the shop. To get where the camera was, had Lucy crossed the road? The most likely route seems to have been that she crossed the A3057, walked through the co-op car park, crossed Rownham's Road, near to the Blue Star bus stop on Route 7, Route 7 runs between Lords Hill and Showling and stops at this point at the bus stop with the highly forgettable ID of Sohag PG. Although looking at the timetables that were released in January 2018, it's highly unlikely that anyone would have been waiting at this stop at this time. However, there is still a slim possibility that there was someone there. So think back please. Were you there? Did you see a teenage girl cross Rownham's Road near the fork with Coxford Road and continue her way up the hill towards the General Hospital? Staff and shoppers at the co-op may well have vital information. Even if you believe it to be irrelevant, the police need to know. Piecing Lucy's timeline together is vital to understand what happened and who the possible culprit is. The next confirmed sighting of Lucy is at 9.22am on Coxford Road near to Southampton General Hospital. The address of the hospital is listed as Tremona Road, but as with all large hospitals, the sprawling complex of buildings runs alongside several nearby roads, including Coxford Road. There's even an entrance to the hospital on Coxford Road. Hospitals are busy centres of movement at all times of day, as it was a Wednesday and shortly before half past nine in the morning, it's likely that there was a lot of traffic both on foot and by various vehicles around the hospital. Did you have an appointment on that day? Did you use the Coxford Road entrance to the hospital grounds? There's metered parking alongside the pavement, sidewalk for the American listeners, and it's quite a narrow pavement, so anyone parking there at the time in question would have been very close to Lucy. There are several multi-storey buildings along the hospital campus that have a clear view of the road and the pavement. Having spent a lot of time in hospitals over the course of my life, I know that the draw of windows is universal. People like to look out and watch the world while they are waiting for their loved one's appointment. Again, you might have dismissed it because you were concentrating on the medical appointment. But please try to think back. Do you recall seeing a young girl whom appeared to be older than her 13 years, possibly carrying or wearing an American-style varsity jacket with her sleeves rolled up. It would have been notable, as England was basking in a heatwave. 
there are some really important people in the CCTV footage. The camera looks out across the car park, across Coxford Road, towards the Princess Anne Hospital. Lucy can be seen walking along the pavement and crossing the road at the entrance to the Princess Anne, and she walks in front of a dark-coloured MPV, possibly a Ford Galaxy, but designs are quite similar. This vehicle stops to let Lucy cross the road. Behind the MPV is a silvery-grey minibus. Lucy is still on her own, and it does not seem that she is being followed, but she is obviously on a mission, as it were. The cars didn't stop out of good manners, but because there is a zebra crossing. So if you drive a dark MPV and remember stopping for Lucy, please make contact with the police. Shortly after crossing the road, Lucy walked behind the General Hospital bus stop, Stop A. At this bus stop is a woman in what appears to be a kima, a specific type of Islamic headdress, or possibly a chador. Her clothes are light, possibly a pale yellow colour, and she's carrying three bags. As Lucy approaches to pass behind the bus stop, the woman stands and a bus draws up, obscuring the rest of the view. It's a Blue Star bus. Were you on this bus at that time, 9.22am, on Wednesday the 25th? Do you remember seeing Lucy or anything unusual? The next confirmed sighting of Lucy is on the CCTV obtained by police from the Tesco's Express on the junction of Coxford Road and Lordswood Road at 9.28am. By this time, Lucy is seen carrying her jacket and still walking with purpose. Where she was going is unknown. It's not known if Lucy had arranged to meet with anyone or what her plans were for the day. Before that, Lucy walked all the way along the road on the north-easterly side going towards Lordswood. This is because Hollybrook Cemetery occupies a substantial area of land there and is shielded by a coppice, a small managed area of woodland that both shield their houses from looking out across the graveyard and provide privacy for the grieving families during internment. The pavement stops outside of 273 Coxford Road, making this the latest point that Lucy could have been on that side of the road, had she crossed at some point after she was seen near the bus stop. This stretch of road is mainly, on the hospital side of the road, tidy little bungalows that seem to be designed for the elderly. So there's a high probability of someone being in those houses on the morning Lucy walked past. The other side of the road is a mixture of 1930s designs and more recent developments. Further along, there are just two-storey former and present social housing, again in the 1930s style. There is a bus stop there called the Springford Crescent Stop and is served by five bus companies, so the stop would have been busy. Were you on a bus or waiting for one? Did you see this girl walking along the road? Tesco Express is a converted pub so it has plenty of parking outside of it and is unobstructed by any hedges or other shrubbery. Customers would have been coming and going. The shop is on a busy junction and opposite the Aldermore Health Centre. 
This houses both the Oldermore Surgery, part of the Solent NHS Trust, and the University of Southampton Primary Care Research Group Faculty of Medicine. Wednesday would have seen a steady footfall of patients. The practice has six doctors listed, as well as nurses, a healthcare team and the practice team. I'm focusing on the health centre because it is opposite a known location, and as the two-storey building faces the car park for the Tesco Express, there's a good chance that someone who visited the health centre on that day saw something important. Adjacent to the Tesco's car park is the Day-Lewis Pharmacy, a low-rise building with an oblong facade. There's parking for six or so vehicles outside, and trade from the health centre would have been regular. There could have been deliveries that morning, or any manner of witness. After the sighting of Lucy on the CCTV at 9.28am near the Tesco Express, Lucy vanishes. As there was no hint of trouble, either at home or around the Tesco Express, Lucy wasn't reported missing until the early evening. A full search commenced and continued overnight. Thursday the 26th of July started with the terrible discovery of the body of 13-year-old Lucy McHugh in Woodland on the edge of Southampton Sports Centre. Lucy was found at 7.45am. She had been stabbed to death. The story unfolds from here, but there's a huge gap that police need filling in. Where did Lucy go after 9.30am? There are a lot of houses surrounding the area where she went missing, and it seems that Lucy continued her walk along Coxford Road. If she had made arrangements to meet someone in the sports centre, it's likely that Lucy walked along Coxford Road, then turned right into Dunkirk Road, and through the small estate of flat-roofed two-storey dwellings to the entrance in the corner. From there, Lucy could have taken any one of three possible paths into the sports complex. Whilst it's possible that Lucy could have been driven there, it seems logical to consider that Lucy entered the sports ground near to the raised cricket green. The frustration is that after 9.30am until 7.45am the next day, there is no reported sightings of Lucy, either alone or with someone. Detective Superintendent Paul Barton of Hampshire Constabulary said, quote, We're really keen to know what she did after leaving her house and would ask that anyone who saw her had contact with her or knows of her movements on Wednesday, contact the incident room. End quote. Sports centres, even during the morning on a midweek day, are seldom ever completely empty. In a spell of good weather, I would consider it likely that there were dog walkers, runners, cyclists, and as it was a summer holiday, plenty of children messing around on bikes or kicking a ball around. So for there to be no information or witness reports during this critical time frame, it beggars belief. If you were there, even if you were there because you pulled a sickie at work and don't want to lose your job, go to the police and tell them what you know, please. 
The major instant team that formed began to examine every scrap of information they could retrieve from the scene. Lucy's post-mortem examination was held on the Friday, when stabbing was found to be the cause of death, but that she also had injuries that were unexplained. Friday the 27th also saw the arrest of a 24-year-old man in connection with sexual activity with a child and murder. Although he is named in the press by some papers early into the investigation, his name disappears from later coverage. So I will err on the side of caution and simply refer to him as the suspect. He is variously described as being of no fixed abode, a tattooist and a care worker. Reports state that he had been living with the family immediately before the brutal murder of their daughter. During questioning, he admitted to contacting Lucy by Facebook the night before she was killed and on the morning she disappeared, but, and this is where the press began to focus on the case a lot more, he refused to give police the password to his Facebook account. His reasoning was that, by doing so, he would reveal information about cannabis, which, given the serious nature of the charges before him, seems like the weakest possible excuse. I'm aware of the frankly moronic chunter of snitches get stitches, but when a child has been brutally murdered, the police discovering that you and a few friends smoke some puff and sometimes pick up bits and bobs for other friends, it's not their overriding concern. And if you're in this situation, just tell them what you know. His refusal to help has caused significant delays in the investigation, with the suspect being technically bailed on the murder and child sexual offences, but sent to prison for 14 months for contempt of court and obstructing a police inquiry for failing to disclose his password. The rise and rise of social media in this decade has been amazing to watch. In general, the digital revolution is breathtaking. The ability to connect with and communicate with people all over the world instantaneously is a great development, but there are problems, as we are all aware. Social media doesn't mean social interaction with a wider array of people with different points of view. Echo chambers, small bubbles of self-supporting and self-bolstering opinion, can produce quite unbalanced communities. There is also the inevitable presence of trolls. Those who are argumentative, harshly critical, bullying and or threatening in online forums and social media. There have been far too many instances where children have been bullied online to the point of suicide. And it's a problem that internet anonymity creates. There has been some speculation online, which I'm not going to repeat or divulge, as DS Paul Barton said, quote, Speculation, particularly on social media, is not helpful and leads to further issues we need to manage. This detracts us from the murder investigation. End quote. Distracting the police investigation is the last thing that anyone wants. The primary legislation that governs the imprisonment of suspects for refusing to give passwords is the Regulatory and Investigative Powers Act of 2000. This is a controversial and divisive act of Parliament. It grants penalties for refusing to give passwords, 
but it also allows the instruments of state extended powers in the collection of data in both a passive and active way. Essentially, the government has a permanent passive collection of data between devices. This, we're told, is only the specific IP addresses of the devices and their location. I'll be honest here and say that I've yet to be convinced of this position, as it seems relatively pointless not to collect the substance of the communications. With that said, however, the scale of the data collection is simply staggering, in whatever way it's done. We're probably all aware of the trite argument of if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear as a justification for the warrantless monitoring of all our data and communications. But it does seem that the much-vaulted proclamation that it's for your safety and security is lacking any real function beyond permanently monitoring the entire population. This is incredibly uncomfortable, especially when once the security service fog is removed and there are serious police inquiries required, the usefulness of this monitoring seems to be doubtful. The suspect in this case was asked twice for his password, which is fair, and he should have helped, although I also understand the concept that it is the job of the police to prove guilt and not the defendant to prove innocence. After the second time of asking and him refusing, that case, which is separate to the charges relating to the sexual activity with a child and murder, went to court and he was duly sent to prison for the maximum of 14 months. His hearing for the murder and child sexual offences is scheduled for October the 27th. In the meantime, the complicated tangle of international laws that have fouled so many investigations is slowly, we are assured by Facebook, being resolved. It shows how slowly the legislative process is when social media is effectively no new thing. We've been talking to each other online for a decade and more, but the various international treaties and legal frameworks are yet to catch up. As Facebook is an American company that operates on a global stage, yet is governed by American legislation, meaning that cooperating with the police and security services of a foreign nation-state is a technical and legal quagmire. Whilst they are currently making the right noises about helping the police by saying they're pushing for legislative reform in the US, meaning that effectively they're doing nothing to actually help, important evidence, be it exculpatory or not, is still out of the reach of investigators. I don't want foreign nation states to have complete access to my online life but I also don't want child murderers being free to roam and kill again because of a legal technicality. The issues that arise from the inability to compel foreign corporations to allow access to users' communications are far too complex to fit into a short podcast, and they're distracting, so we'll leave it there. If you have an opinion, pop over to the Facebook page and let me know. The last episode certainly generated a lot of discussion, and further information provided by crime writer and former police intelligence officer Chris Clark. It's well worth the read. All the while that the investigation was snagged on Facebook, other members of the team have been widely appealing for information about Lucy's movements and whereabouts during the time between when she was last seen alive 
at 9.28am on the 25th of July and 7.45am the following morning when her body was found. Detective Superintendent Paul Barton, the senior investigating officer in charge of the major incident team, said, quote, Since leaving her house in Mansell Road East at 9am on Wednesday the 25th of July, we now know that Lucy was close to the sports centre just half an hour later. We need to know how she reached the Tesco Express and where she went next. Maybe you were driving or cycling past at that time and can remember something. You may even have dash cam or action camera footage. We're really hoping the CCTV footage will jog people's memories so that we can further build up a picture of Lucy's movements. You will see that Lucy was carrying her jacket at the time. It was a hot day, so you may have seen her wearing a white vest top. We're also asking runners or walkers to check their mapping apps for the period in question. They may realise they were close to the scene of the murder and have information that might be useful to our investigation. Please think back to this time and remember where you were and what you may have seen. It may have seemed insignificant at the time, but knowing now what has happened, it could prove vital to our investigation. We specifically want to speak with anyone who was with Lucy, who spoke to her or thinks they may have seen her on that Wednesday or into the early hours of that Thursday. Equally, if you have any dash cam footage or private CCTV images which you think could help us, please get in touch. We also want to hear from anyone who may have been involved in activities at the Sports Centre on the Wednesday. If that's you or you know clubs who were there on Wednesday, please get in touch. We fully understand that emotions are running high in the community, but we again appeal for people not to speculate about the details of the investigation on social media. It doesn't help the investigation or Lucy's family at this difficult time. End quote. Despite a suspect being in custody, the charity Crime Stoppers, whom you can contact with absolute anonymity, has put forward a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and successful conviction of the person responsible. In August, a team from the National Crime Agency, England's strategic and operational specialists in the fight against serious and organised crime, including child exploitation, sent a team to work with Hampshire Constabulary. Their expertise will hopefully bring a swift closure to this case, but simply because that there are many accomplished detectives working this case, and there's a suspect in custody, it doesn't mean that people cannot still have vital information. Police are particularly keen to speak to anyone and everyone who saw Lucy on the morning she disappeared, and they are very keen to find someone who was at the sports centre that morning. Lucy was found in the woodland near to the Southampton Snow Sports Centre. There are houses that back onto the sports ground in the roads of Red Hill Close and Boulderwood Road. It's possible that Lucy and her attacker walked past the tennis courts and if you were there and you haven't spoken to police, please contact them on 101 and ask for the Operation Refund team. 
This case is really quite different from the cases I normally cover, as it is still very much a live investigation. But I felt that the case is still very much in the minds of the children Lucy went to school with at the Redlands Community School. Police have already appealed to them as they return from their summer holidays to come forward with any information that Lucy might have made known to her peers but not her family. It's only normal to have a life that doesn't include your parents, but in instances where somebody has died violently, any notion of becoming a grass or a snitch really does fade into total insignificance and protecting Lucy, whilst admirable, is no longer appropriate. Her family need you to help the police as much as possible. That's where we leave this shorter than usual episode. I'll be back with an update after October the 27th, following the first hearing into the child sexual offences and murder charge laid against the suspect currently held in prison. I'd like to thank Phil Rogers, a corporate communications officer with Hampshire Constabulary, for his help with the research for this ongoing case. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. Still at Large is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Wooshka, Google Podcasts, Spotify and your usual podcast app. If you like the show, please leave a rating to help get these appeals seen by more people. You can join in with conversations about the show on our Facebook page by visiting Facebook slash Still at Large Podcast. The theme is by Duke Deck an online music AI at jukedeck.com. Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur Media Production. <laughs>